So this is going to be fun. Um, you can pray for me. All I'd ask is that you don't leave halfway through. Um, Jesus talking about divorce, marriage, remarriage, he was quite extreme. He was extreme even for his day. Uh, in fact, so extreme was Jesus that when he finished speaking on marriage and divorce, his disciples turned to one another and um, went through the info bits here. And, um, and they said this, If such is the case, it is it's such a case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. So when Jesus was done, finished speaking about marriage and divorce, his disciples went, wow, maybe it's better not to marry at all. And Jesus just kind of shrugged his shoulders and were like, okay, if you can handle that, then yeah. He didn't correct that way of that line of thinking. So, so that's what we've been doing. And last week we started by looking at this. Three reasons why Jesus would say what he does say about marriage and divorce. And we're going to get there in a bit and read what he has to say. But three reasons. Number one, we said because of the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching on integrity, importance of promises, your yes being yes and all of that. Uh, we looked at that last week. We had a stack of um, poker chips here and, uh, and Martin had to pick them all up off the floor. We talked about how trust is like finance. Uh, it's difficult to accrue and easy to spend. And so we were talking about how we can live lives where our trust accounts in personal relationships are always going up. Uh, and so today we're really going to be looking at these other two, uh, the context, uh, the cultural context of Jesus' day and what Jesus, the reason Jesus said what he did because of the significance of marriage. Okay, so that is where we're going. We're going to get to the reading together in a bit. Now, I'm told that for the first I don't know, 300 years of Christianity, um, what Jesus had to say um, wasn't wildly controversial among his followers. Um, the disciples may have said, you know, it's better not to marry, but still, for Jesus' disciples, people who followed Jesus afterwards for the first 300 years, the church's position on marriage and divorce wasn't wildly controversial. In fact, Christians were known for having uniquely strong and robust marriages. In fact, pagans and Greeks uh, at the time were often shocked by the permanence of Christian marriages. Um, and in, see, in the Roman world, they had begun uh, abandoning marriage. And um, it was increasingly common among Roman citizens, if you were wealthy, you'd, you'd own a lot of slaves, they would run your property for you. Uh, you'd have several children by them, and as you were nearing the end of your life, you would just uh, kind of uh, adopt one of your slave's children, and then they would inherit your estate. That was common in the Roman world, but among Christians, it was radically different. Uh, you see, one of the reasons that Christianity grew uh, to the extent that it did, especially among women, um, was because of the permanence of Christian marriages. Uh, for the early church, you could no more be unmarried than you could be unsaved. And as a result, provided a lot of security for women, and it was a permanent feature of early Christianity in the church's life. Uh, it was really once the Roman Empire became Christianified and converted to Christianity that the people in the church, it became fashionable to be Christians. Uh, and so you had a lot of kind of nominal believers, nominal churchgoers, and they started then looking for loopholes, if you like, or reasons why they might be able to get out of the marriages that they were in. Fast forward thousands of years, we find ourselves in the state that we're in, where you can get divorced for all sorts of reasons, and marriages aren't uh, as permanent as they perhaps would have once been, certainly within the world, uh, society at large, and at times, sadly, within the church as well. Uh, but over the past 40 years in the U.S., uh, they've been doing studies on the health and decline 
of marriage. Uh, and they, they ran a couple of surveys. They found that in 1960, uh, over 72% of adults who were of marriageable age were married. And in 2008, they did the same study, and only 50% of adults were married. And also of those who were around in, in, um, in 1960, uh, the divorce rate has doubled since 1960 to 2008 in the US. You think, ah, oh, that's America. They're a lot more liberal than us anyway. Well, in the UK, uh, of those people who were married in 1995, a third of them are now divorced. And half of those divorced couples had at least one child together. And a third of those children have not seen their parents since the separation. And if you've experienced divorce, either firsthand in your own marriage or in a friend's marriage or in your parents' marriage, you know some of the pain behind those statistics. And so even coming, many of you came today knowing we were going to be talking about marriage or divorce, knowing this is a painful subject, this is a, a live subject for many people. And we have to be bold enough to allow Jesus to speak to us on this issue. At a time when marriage is being devalued and undermined and redefined uh, in society and in some parts of the church, it's important that we at least expose ourselves to what Jesus has to say and allow our thinking to be informed by him. And Jesus, as we'll find out, has a very high view of marriage. And if all that didn't convince you, Tony Blair once said, strong marriages are the foundation of strong communities. I've lost the room now, haven't I? It was all going okay until we read Tony Blair. All right. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be reading, uh, going to jump back a few verses to pick up at verse 27 and then we'll carry on. Should appear behind me. There we go. Okay, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Tear it out and throw it away, Jesus. That's quite extreme. For it would be better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Hell. Now, I've got a few questions about hell, Jesus. Let's talk about that. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole of your body be thrown into hell. Okay, that's twice, Jesus, you mentioned hell. Let's talk about hell. We've got questions about that. And so far I've lost several of my body parts. What's going on? Can we talk about this, Jesus? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's right. It's what Moses said in the Old Testament. But I say to you, uh-oh. Whenever Jesus says that, he's ramping up the scale. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Makes her, Jesus, maybe you don't understand what adultery is. You see, she can't commit adultery if she's been divorced. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, that's, that's confusing. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not even take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So, so far, we've lost several of our body parts. He's talking about hell. He's saying that divorced people can still commit adultery. I can't be a Christian. This is hard. What Jesus has to say is tough. Last week, I pointed out that Jesus speaking on marriage and divorce sandwiches it between teaching on lust and lies. 
We said that lust and lies are like weeds that can choke the fragile plant of marriage, one writer said. And if we sort out our lust problems and our integrity problems, a lot of our marriages can be helped. But still, I read that, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, I have a lot of questions, a lot of things that I want to talk about. How can someone who's divorced in Jesus' mind still commit adultery? And how can someone who's not even married be forced to commit adultery if he marries a divorcee? doesn't understand. Maybe Jesus has a different definition of adultery to us. Maybe Jesus doesn't understand what adultery is. Or maybe we don't understand what marriage really is. So we talked about those three reasons why Jesus may have said what he had to say about marriage and divorce. The first was to do with integrity. That he wants us to be a trustworthy people because God is a trustworthy God. That when we say yes, we mean yes. When we say I will, we will. When we say I do, we do. When we say no, we mean no. So that's the first reason. Today we're just looking at the second two. And the second one is this. Jesus said what he said about marriage and divorce to, to do with the cultural context in order to protect women I'm oh, sorry, let's put this up here. The cultural setting of Jesus' day. In order to protect women and discourage divorce. Okay, so in Jesus' day, um, in a society where women had very few rights as it was, uh, divorced women had even fewer. Uh, if you were a divorced woman in that society, you were extremely vulnerable. Uh, you often would have experienced alienation, uh, rejection from your family, and or poverty, uh, since it was hard or you were unable to make a living of your own. And many divorced women in that society were forced into prostitution just as a way of trying to make a living. So Jesus says what he says to protect women. Uh, but also in that day, divorce was becoming increasingly common. People were looking for more and more loopholes. So Jesus says anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds, in other words, saying there's plenty of reasons why people are divorcing at the moment, but if you do it for any other reason except for this, because divorce was common. In that society, there were um, most commonly two ways that you could divorce your wife uh, as a husband. Uh, the first was to say the phrase, I divorce you three times. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. One, two, okay, don't burn the chicken again. Uh, and maybe that's where parents got it from. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. In fact, some popular teachers of the day were saying that um, a man could divorce his wife simply if she displeased him or if he found another fairer than her. So again, women had very few rights. And here were these teachers saying, husbands, you can divorce your wife for lots of reasons. If she displeases you, if she burns the chicken, whatever it is, you can kick her out. If you find someone that you prefer, if you want to upgrade for a younger model, you can do that. People were saying that. People in Jesus' day were swallowing that. So Jesus says, no, you can't, you can't do that. So he's protecting women. The second way that you could get a divorce in that society was to issue a certificate of divorce. Uh, which is something that Moses says in the Old Testament. You can issue a certificate of divorce to your wife so she's officially divorced so that when she goes home to her family, she's been kicked out of uh, her marriage and there's more chance that they would take her in because the divorce was legitimate. They could see that she hadn't um, committed adultery or been unfaithful. They could, they could do that. And Jesus is referencing that certificate when he said, you've heard it said, give a certificate of divorce. And the Bible's teaching, or in God's mind, uh, there's really uh, only a handful of reasons why people can get divorced. What makes divorce legitimate? One, as Jesus said, is sexual immorality. Uh, another is desertion. So abandonment or abuse would come under that category. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. For those two reasons, the Bible says divorce is permissible uh, for sexual immorality or adultery or for abandonment, desertion. But other than that, there isn't a, an excusable reason, the Bible says, for divorce. And Jesus seems to not only just be taking that standard, but raising it as he so often did. He said, you've heard, you know, there might be two reasons for divorce, but it sounds like he's saying there's really only one acceptable circumstance for remarriage. Unless sexual immorality has taken place, remarrying someone makes you an adulterer, Jesus says. Now, in our day, in our society, divorce is it's a lot more acceptable than it used to be. Uh, in fact, it's quite normal now, um, almost expected. People don't get married with a view to divorce, but they know it's a, it's a viable option. Um, and when marriages are in difficulty, talk very quickly turns to divorce now, uh, a lot quicker than it would have done 50 years ago. But also in our day, um, divorce is still just as painful as it was then. In the Old Testament, God says, I hate divorce, and I'm yet to meet a divorcee who doesn't agree with God. Divorce is incredibly painful, often comes with a lot of shame, uh, feelings of alienation. And although divorce is one of those things that for some people it promises happiness, it rarely delivers on that. So a lot of people I know who are in unhappy marriages um, daydream about divorce because the daydream in their mind allows them to be free and independent again. And yet, studies have been done, particularly in recent years, that have highlighted that that isn't the case. Uh, in fact, there was a, an academic survey or, or study done that showed that on the 12, kind of, um, 12 basic kind of psychological assessments of happiness, they found that people who were unhappy and got divorced were no more happy, on any of those 12 scores of psychological, emotional well-being, were no more happy than people who were unhappy but remained married which is an interesting situation. I was reading several articles from The Telegraph and newspapers as well where lots of people were testifying saying, I thought divorce was going to bring me happiness and I feel more broken than I did when I was in an unhappy marriage. Divorce is just as painful as it was in Jesus' day. Now often in, in hearing what the Bible says about divorce, people are, um, particularly modern people, are, are attempted to reply with some objections. You know, it's all very well, kind of giving these very tight, what seems black and white, harsh things about divorce. You can only get divorced under these two circumstances. But what about, what about people who just fall out of love with one another? Why can't they get divorced? Or what about people who get, get married and years later just discover that they aren't compatible in any way? It seems incredibly harsh on people like that. You see, the thinking about marriage in our society is, is that marriage is like a piece of fruit, that when you bang it and it's bruised, there's nothing you can do to get rid of that bruise. You either cut it out or you chuck the fruit away. A lot of people think of marriage like that. Once marriage goes south or sour, there's nothing you can do other than get rid of it. But again, that's not true. Uh, again, so marriage is one of the things that there's just tons of surveys and studies always being done on it. And the majority consensus is this marriages can recover over time. And unhappy marriages do and can become happy again over time. So in the 1980s, uh, 5,000 married couples were interviewed about the, the health of their marriage. 
Um, and 645 of them said that they were unhappy in their marriage, had an unhappy relationship. Five years later, that same survey was done among those same people. And of those 645 couples who were unhappy, some had got divorced, but of those that stayed together, two-thirds of them were now saying, no, my marriage is happy now. My marriage is happy. So that within less than five years, unhappy marriages, two-thirds of them do become happy again, is what surveys have shown. Which, again, flies in the face of a lot of our understanding and talking about marriage, that once it's unhappy, once it's broken, once you've fallen out of love, throw it away. Divorce is the answer. That will make you happy, and it just isn't true. And people often talk about the lines of compa- compatibility. Well, we just grew apart. We discovered we weren't as compatible as we first thought. But biblically, that's the point of marriage. There aren't two people who are compatible for one another. In the beginning, in Genesis, when marriage is introduced, it is a man and a woman, people who are other, biologically, emotionally, spiritually wired, different from one another, coming together. The marriage is the bringing together of two people who are other than one another. There's never a perfect fit. There's never a perfect compatibility, especially when you're dealing with sinful people. Sinful people who are selfish by nature, self-driven, self-centered by nature. Compatibility is a myth of the modern age. And actually, you know, years ago, people understood that you didn't get married to find self-fulfillment necessarily. You got married to become a better person because people understood marriage refines character. It makes you more godly or it it kind of knocks off some of the rough edges of your personality and your character. People understood that 100 years ago. Now, you see, we prize self-contentment, self-fulfillment over character. That when things are tough and our character is really under fire, we go, I'm not happy. And I'm going to leave in search of happiness. Whereas the point of marriage is say two people who are other than one another coming together. And I know the difficulty in speaking on a subject like this to a room full of people, all of us with different experiences of marriage, uh, all of us coming with different kind of bits of baggage about marriage, all of us wanting to say, yeah, but you don't understand. He said this or she said that. He did this. If you knew what I was going through, you would speak differently. I don't understand. I don't know. But Jesus does. And Jesus, who speaks as he does on marriage and divorce, Jesus is not an unfeeling, unsympathetic, uncaring savior. No, he's the God-man himself who bled on a cross for us. Jesus is the one who spent time with the down and outs of society, who loved people, who spoke compassionately to people, who brought healing to people. So that's the one that we come to. The important thing, though, I think, in what Jesus is saying about point one, to, to discourage divorce and to protect women If you're in an unhappy marriage, if things are particularly difficult for you, if divorce seems like the only option, my one piece of advice would be don't do anything in haste. Don't make any quick decision and don't make any decisions independent of godly advice. That's that's why we have elders governing churches to be there to help in those circumstances, to bring advice, to sit and talk with you. So that's what I would want to suggest. So that's point one of why Jesus said what he said to do with the cultural setting of his day. It's also relevant for us. The second one is this, because of the significance of marriage. Uh, The significance and beauty and mystery and wonder of marriage and of what God and Jesus think about marriage. And so let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. Now throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
He says it about all kinds of practical issues. You've heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, don't even say raka, or you fool to your brother. Whoever hates his brother, he says, is just as guilty of murder. And whenever Jesus says this phrase, you've heard it said, but I've said to you, what he's really saying is, you've heard it said, but you haven't been told the whole truth. Or you haven't understood the whole truth of the matter. See, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Yeah, which is true. But that's not the whole truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth, if you can handle it, is this. It's about the lust in your heart rather than the adultery in your bedroom. That's the issue. Or he says it about uh, anger or murder. Oh, you've heard it said about murder, but the whole truth is it's got to do with your anger. And so that's what he's doing when he talks about divorce. You've heard it said this about divorce, but let me talk to you about marriage, the whole truth. Now, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, uh, this is, he expands his teaching on marriage. Uh, so this is a very short section, but in Matthew 19, we get a fuller insight into what Jesus thinks about it. And uh, this is quite small, so you have to put your glasses on. Um, but it says this in Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. They come up to Jesus to test him. What's the test here? Well, the test is this. Uh, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, spoke out about King Herod's marriage to his brother's wife, and he got his head chopped off. So the Pharisees are asking Jesus, and they're testing him, saying, come on, what's the truth about marriage? Are you going to say something as controversial and as shocking as your cousin John did? Because that might be a quick way of us being able to get rid of you if you agree with John. So that's the test here. And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh with what God has joined together. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You may now kiss the bride. Um, Jesus answers their question on the law and the legality of divorce with a, an answer about origin. So they come and say, Jesus, what does the law say? And he says, have you read the book of Genesis? And they're like, yeah, yeah, but what about this? Can this man divorce this woman? And Jesus says, what did Adam and Eve do? And they're like, it's infuriating. I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. I'm not talking about the Garden of Eden. I want to know about what the law says. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. If you want to understand how to engage and deal with marriage, you need to go back to the origin of marriage and understand what marriage is in essence and in purpose from the beginning. See, often we can answer by looking at cultural trends or what society thinks or even what the church might think on an issue. Um, whereas Jesus goes back to the origin. Oh, well, divorce, we think this about divorce now because we're modern people. We understand, thing that, understand things that Jesus didn't. We, our relationships are different. We have such things as open marriages now, Jesus. People get married with prenups in their, in their vows before they you know, go through with it, Jesus. You didn't understand all of that. So therefore, in light of that, divorce is a little bit more acceptable now, isn't it, Jesus? And Jesus answers going, no, no, let's go back to the beginning. Um, as a church... As, as followers of mine, Jesus would say, I'm calling you to be countercultural in everything. This is just one more of those things. I want you to uphold and see that no matter what society says about marriage and divorce, no matter how society choose to re chooses to redefine it or what kind of reasons it says are acceptable for divorce, Jesus says, I want you to be countercultural followers of me. In the beginning, divorce wasn't there. In the beginning, one man, one woman came together. See, Jesus says marriage has to do 
with the coming together of two people. There were two. There's now one. Now Moses allows for divorce in the Old Testament. Jesus goes on to say in that reading, he allows for divorce in the Old Testament because of their hardness of heart. Because of just the state of the world, kind of God made a concession, said, okay, divorce is a part of broken life, I know, but it wasn't there in the beginning. See, Jesus says what he says about marriage and divorce because of the significance of marriage. Marriage, Jesus says, results in oneness. Marriage results in oneness. There were two, two people, separate lives, independent lives, coming together to form one. There was two happy people going their own way, doing their own thing. They fell in love or they signed an agreement or they got together and now there's one. Marriage has to do with oneness. There was a party. They signed a contract. They left mom and dad. They moved in together. They had sex. They changed their name. There was oneness. There was oneness. You see, part of why uh, gay marriage is more mirage than it is marriage is because it looks like marriage, but there's no oneness. There's no coming together as biblically understood of two separate people, two other people, a man, a woman, different from one another in every kind, coming together to make one. As the Bible understands sex uh, being this powerful and uniting aspect of two bodies coming together in one, uh, that's a picture of marriage. And in homosexual relationships, it's just not the same as biblically understood. There's no oneness. And this isn't to do with, you know, we're just being harsh about marriage or, or, or wanting to restrict who can fall in love with one another. We're saying that in the beginning, right in the very beginning when marriage was invented, there was three core components of marriage, wasn't there? There was the otherness that we mentioned. Two people were very different, man and woman, embracing the other. There was the, um, uh, the oneness of Adam and Eve, the, the two people becoming one flesh. And there was the potential for the flourishing and expanding of the human race. None of those are possible within a, a homosexual understanding of marriage. That's why gay marriage is more mirage than it is marriage. It looks like marriage, but it isn't. We don't, we're not anti-gay, we're not anti-gay people. But we're pro-marriage and we're pro-holding to the age-old description and image of what marriage is because it's something that was there in the very beginning that we can't mess with, something that was there even before the fall. So the question that the Pharisees come to Jesus with and ask, um, when's divorce okay, they say? When is it acceptable? And Jesus replies with the answer, I'm not even sure it's possible. See, there were, there were two people, and there's now one. Before God, there's a, a oneness. Now, legally, you can divorce for all kinds of reasons, but before God, there was a oneness that was created, a uniting of two separate individuals. You can't easily undo that. You know, turning a cake back into its component parts and its ingredients isn't just difficult. I'm not sure it's possible. And Jesus, in saying things like this, reveals this is his view of marriage. That marriage results in oneness. And actually, people who are in second or third marriages understand this. That making the marriage go away doesn't always, making, doesn't always make the marriage go away. People in their second and third marriages often say, I thought when I was out of that, I was done with it. We signed the papers. We said goodnight, goodbye. It was done. But it keeps hounding me. It's still a part of my life. I can't escape it. 
because marriage results in oneness. And you can't unone what God has made one. Or certainly you can't very easily unone what God has made one. That's why the disciples said, surely it's, it's better for a man not to marry if this is the case. If this is how serious marriage is, how significant marriage is, maybe it's better not to marry. And Jesus says, yeah, if, if you can handle it. You know, some people remain single for all kinds of reasons. Jesus says, this is just another one for the kingdom of God because I don't want to get married. That sounds too hard. I can't take that. I'll stay single. I'll stay fulfilled before God in singleness. And actually, the, the Apostle Paul says, it's better not to marry given the present distress because people who marry will have kind of worldly troubles. So Paul says, actually, singleness is, is a really good thing. Because you can, you can be entirely devoted to God's purposes and God's call. Often it's the weak of us who need to get married that do. But Jesus has a very high view of marriage. So to recap then, those three things that we looked at. Teaching and promises and oaths, yes be yes, no be no, the cultural context and the significance of marriage. Now, I don't know how comfortable it's been to hear some of this for many of us. And you might be sitting there thinking, I don't know how to respond to this. This, is, this sounds very painful, sounds very difficult, sounds very hard. Uh, I came across some advice that someone gave on this I found really helpful. Just three things. Embrace, confess, and ask. You probably sit here with lots of yeah buts and you don't understand. And if you'd have experienced what I experienced, you'd have done the same probably. She said or he said, there comes a point where we have to kind of have all of those up in the air and still embrace what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce. Embrace it. Step one. It might be painful. We might have year butts and you don't understand. And he said, this is what he said. We might wish he didn't. We might wish he said something else. But we embrace what Jesus said. Secondly, we confess. Uh, many of us are aware of sin in our lives. Um, Maybe in getting married a second time, you committed adultery in Jesus' eyes. Maybe you broke up a marriage before. Um, maybe, I don't know what it is for you. But embrace, confess your sin, your shortcoming, and ask. Ask for the grace of God in your life to help you live now as God intends you to live. Ask for, if you're in your second marriage, stay as you are. Ask for second marriage grace. If you're single, ask for grace to live a fulfilled single life, promising, uh, fulfilling God's call on your life. Ask for grace. Conf embrace, confess, and ask. Now, I know that whenever we talk about God's ideal... We become, it becomes very painfully aware that the real of our lives is a long way away. This is the ideal. Two people became one, one flesh before God. You can't un-one what God makes one, and, and yet we know the real of our situations is often very painful, often very difficult. And all of us fall far short of that ideal. Jesus lived his life upholding this ideal and engaging with people in the real of their situations and he didn't condemn them. He was able to uphold this ideal and still love people in their real and not condemn them. The Bible says that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but to love the world. And there's a famous story in the book of John 
about a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. She was dragged from the bedroom, thrown on the floor in front of Jesus. A crowd of angry religious people gathered around. They knew that Jesus upheld the law of Moses. They knew that Jesus had a very high view of marriage. They knew that the law said a woman like this ought to be stoned to death. So they gathered around, eyes on Jesus, woman at his feet, and they say, what shall we do with her? She's been caught sinning. She's an adulterer. What shall we do? Many of you know the story and know the line that Jesus gives. He says, let those who are without sin pick up the stone and throw the first one. At that point, people start dropping their stones and walking off. Another trap that we set for Jesus that he got got out of. And it continues with people walking away until Jesus is the only person left standing there. And he looks at the woman who's at his feet, who's just heartbeats away from death. And he says those words, neither do I condemn you. He looks at her and says, look at me, look at me. Imagine the scene, the humiliation that she'd have felt, the fear that she would have experienced at the feet of the Son of God. He said, look at me, God in a bod, okay? You can trust what I'm about to say. You need your full attention on this next bit. And he says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. He says, I know what you've done is wrong. I know you've sinned. I know you've broken a marriage. I know you've committed adultery. I know what you've done is wrong. It's okay. You didn't understand how significant marriage was. Aren't you glad I'm here? Aren't you glad I'm here? But neither do I condemn you, he says. And then he says to her, now go and don't sin anymore. Stop sinning as you were before. Live differently, in other words. And as all of us gather at Jesus' feet, all of us aware of our sin and shortcomings, failures that we've made in the past or present, failures that we're, we're plotting to make in the future, going, I don't know what to do, do, Jesus. And he'd say those words to you. I don't condemn you. In fact, I died on the cross to forgive you so that you'd know I can, don't condemn you. Now, I don't know your personal present situation, but he does. Whatever you decide to do in the future, he's there. He understands. He doesn't condemn. He offers arms of love and a, and a hand to help you back onto your feet. And sometimes people ask the question, well, given what I've done, or, or given that, you know, the, the stuff that I've done in my past, where do I stand in relation to the church? Uh, often um, people at phone churches, don't they, um, to book a marriage, and if you're a divorcee, churches turn them away and say, "No, you can't be divorced in a church. You can't be married again in a church because you've been divorced." And they often have to live with the label of divorcee again and feel that shame. And people often ask, "Well, given that life is messy, that my life's messy, where do I stand in relation to the church?" Where well, you stand square in the middle of needing God's grace and forgiveness. And you stand alongside every other person in this room who also stands square in the middle of needing God's grace and God's forgiveness. Listen, if Jesus doesn't condemn you, the church doesn't condemn you. And any church that has condemned you isn't acting as Jesus tells it to. Because the church is supposed to be the body of Christ on earth. We're supposed to do what Jesus wants us to do. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you, so the church doesn't condemn you. And brothers and sisters in the church, we don't condemn. It's ours to love, to accept, to offer forgiveness, to embrace, to help one another through this messy life. It's what we're here to do because Jesus doesn't condemn us in our sin, in our wickedness, and in our shame. And that's what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce. That's why he brings it up as he does in the Sermon on the Mount because he has such a high view of marriage. 
He wants people to see the beauty and the complexity of it. And he wants us as his followers to uphold that standard, painful as it is, hard as it is, even though we go, I fall far short of that, but still I'll trust you, Jesus. I'll trust that when you say that's true, I'll take that as true. But let's respond now by receiving God's grace in our situations and on our lives again. Hear those words afresh for yourself. Jesus saying, I don't condemn you. Uh, Perhaps, John, you could come up and we'll sing a a song to respond. Maybe even that Oceans one. Um, Father, I thank you that you don't condemn us, that you love us. That though all of us have fallen miles short of the glory of God, the standard of God, though we live in a world where the ideals of God are not upheld, life is far from ideal. Thank you that you don't condemn. You love. Jesus, help us to follow you in our circumstances, however we find ourselves. We want to trust you. And we want to do all that we can to be faithful followers of yours. Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet?